are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. So our guest today is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine Surgery at Duke University and at the Duke Global Health Institute. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she became known as the friendly neighbor epidemiologist through her social media outlets, which reached over 10 million people in 2020 and 2021. She continues posting on the social account and her Substack blog with a monthly reach of two to four million people. Her work has been featured in Time Magazine, NPR, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, and Baptist News Global. Before joining the faculty at Duke University, she spent four years at Baylor University in the Department of Public Health and was a research scholar at DGHI for two years. Her debut book, The Science of the Good Samaritan, Thinking Bigger bigger About Loving Our Neighbors, released on October 24th, 2023. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Emily Smith to the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here for sure. Yeah. Um, as I was saying before we started recording, you know, I found you because of your Facebook uh, account and was just always amazed, obviously, with your expertise in the science and um, everything you were sharing, but also your lens as an evangelical Christian. Yeah. Um, I thought that was really fascinating of trying to work with those two communities, yeah. like trying to kind of be a boundary uh, spanning individual for that. But I think before we really get into that, I would love for you to just kind of talk to us a little bit about what drew you to epidemiology. Yes. And prior to the pandemic, I don't think a lot of people knew what that word meant. By the way, mm. it's seven <laughs> syllables. And so throw that into a Thanksgiving meal or something if you need a, a big word to kind of wow family <laughs> with. <laughs> but, but, you know, people would get us confused with skin doctors like epidermis instead of epidemics. Um, or entomology, which I think is bugs, right? It is. Yes. Yeah. It's a, just yeah. another really big E word. <laughs> I don't know. So now people know kind of what we are and who we're about just because we've all come out of the pandemic. So if you need the nerdy Jeopardy definition of what that is, um, before I get into how I got into the field is the distribution and determinants of disease. And so what makes a disease spread and who is at risk? Um, I tend to say, you know, clinicians and nurses and dentists, they focus on one-on-one -on -one patients at a time. And we focus on one community or population level at a time. So the aggregate of a lot of individuals. Um, I grew up in a tiny town in eastern New Mexico, 10 miles from the Texas border. So it is West Texas culture, you know, flat land, great sunsets and oil fields um, and really good people. But it was it was a really small town and a lovely town. Um, and I just was all I just always loved science. My eighth grade science teacher started talking about DNA and y'all would have thought he was talking about Beyonce or something. I was just <laughs> like, what is this? And it's magic. And so he gave me a college textbook. This is as nerdy as it gets. And now it's kind of cool to be a nerd back then in the nineties. Mm. I guarantee it was not near as cool oh. to wear glasses. Yeah. Right. So he, mm -hmm. and I read it, I read it on a band trip, which is like double nerd points. Um, but I just loved science and math. I, I don't know what it was, but he hooked me up with the first female scientist that I had ever met at Texas Tech University. And I started doing a science fair project with her in high school because there really wasn't the capacity to do anything like that, you know, at my traditional high school because it was too small. Um, 
and so I still thought I'm going to do something in science, but I had all, I'd also grown up in the church and our family hosted a lot of missionaries that came into our church. And so I, I heard their stories. They were very gracious to listen to an eight-year-old, nine-year-old little, you know, questions about the world and their adventures. So early on, I knew I wanted to do, I thought I wanted to be a missionary um, and I still just love the science. And so the natural way to do that is go pre-med. Um, I kind of thought the only way to do that is through medical school. So let's just do that. So I did. I chose medical school um, as a, a goal and took the MCAT. I got into med school, uh, got married straight out of college to my pastor husband. And his first job in the church was uh, all the way across the country in South Carolina. So I had a gap year. Um, and I real, I, I mean, I'm just a nerd, so I decided let's just get another degree because it's what we do when we have a gap year, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, right. a lot of people might as well. Well, I might as well, yeah. And it was in public health because I thought it'd look good for medical school. And day one of epidemiology, uh, my professor, who was really just inspirational, anyways, he did the Jeopardy definition of epi, but then he said, "This is a." This is an an equity science because most of the time we're going to be working at people Mm -hmm. who are on the margins in these communities that are marginalized for health or poverty. And growing up in the church, it just clicked in my mind that that's the science of the Good Samaritan. It's quantifying the people who are most at need and then choosing not to walk by. Um, So I didn't go to medical school, went to a PhD in Epi instead in history from there. But I, I also remember going to my first mission trip on the Mercy Ship to Honduras. And when the doctors were were focusing one-on-one on, you know, these people who had traveled a very long way to get to care, I was naturally asking the bigger picture questions about poverty or mm-hmm. why this community has so such high rates of you know, diabetes or surgical needs when others didn't. And those are inherently epi questions. I just didn't know it at the time. That's interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned this is the science of the Good Samaritan, which is uh, the title of your newly released book. Congratulations. Thank you. Has that been a story that has that clicked with you then? Or is this more of a a recent connecting of the dots? Has this story been in, in your heart and mind this whole time? Oh, the whole time. Okay. For sure. I I love that story of the Good Samaritan. And a lot of people are familiar with it, even if you're not of the Christian faith. You know, it's that story of where there's a man on the side of the road who is very sick. I mean, sick enough, hurt enough where he can't help himself. And two people walk by. Um, Jesus is telling this story, by the way. And those people are, are noted as religious leaders. And so they're kind of the people who represent power and privilege of the day. But there's one person who actually stopped, who's the Samaritan. And in that time, that would have been not who you expected to be highlighted in a story. They typically do not have the places of power or privilege in the religious time of the day. But he stopped and he helped the man. And not only that, he helped him. He bandaged him up. He took him to a place to recover. And then he paid for all of it. And it's just a holistic view of what helping, you know, true solidarity and helping means. So I think that that story just growing up in the church has always 
very much resonated with me wanting to do missions. But then when I got into Epi, it resonated on a, a scientific level. Interesting. I love how at the very beginning of the book, you know, you have all those little quotes before you get into the reading itself and, you know, talking, you know, from Mark, uh, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then you kind of go into, you know, well, this is what health is the greatest of gifts from Buddhism, perform all work carefully guided by compassion from Hinduism. And then you go on with Islam, Judaism, and then you end, which I thought was really sweet with your kid, love your neighbor. That's just being a good human. Yeah. Um, that really resonated with me because I'm actually teaching a science and religion class at UNC Charlotte. And I just, I wanted it to be not a science and um, Christianity class. I wanted it to focus on multiple religions. And so yeah. I'm doing it for the first time. And what, I mean, yes, this is coming more from a Christian lens, but what made you even include all of that in there? Because I thought that was really interesting. Yes, I... One of my biggest fears about releasing this book is it being misconstrued as a Christian faith book and making that the the center of all faiths. Um, I want. I mean, I work with all faiths. I work in in predominantly Muslim countries. Um, I've worked. I've definitely worked with all faiths during the pandemic. But then that quote with my kid at the end. You know, you don't have to be of any faith to just want to be a good human. He said that during the pandemic when he didn't understand why so many people were angry at me because um, he would, I mean, he lived through it. He, they heard and saw different things too. And so he just couldn't understand why being a good human wasn't just the top of the list for everybody. Um, so I, I didn't want this book to come out even unconsciously making people feel like you have to be of the Christian faith. That's the center of the world or the center of all faiths. Cause it's just not, there are gorgeous expressions of faith or non-faith or just being a good human around. And I wanted to be very careful in that. It, also, when you read the book, you'll see that Christianity has been poorly centered for the sake of conquest or colonialism, or we see it even nowadays right here in America, of we need to put the Ten Commandments back in a courthouse or say a prayer before football games, but that's just a Christian prayer that's not inclusive of all. Um, and I did not want to be one of those people that even unconsciously said, you have to be a Christian, because I just, I don't think you do. They're beautiful people in the world. So thank you for talking about that. It was important to start the book for me with that kind of foundation. Yeah, I thought that, like I said, it just really resonated with me. And it probably because I'm coming from the lens of the class I'm teaching, you know, I am a, a Christian, I'm Episcopalian, but I have always been very curious and fascinated by other religious traditions. And I just love learning about them. Um, and so I love that you had that in there. And I just remember right away, just running to my wife, being like, oh, look at this. And, um, well, so. and I also didn't want to proselytize even some unconsciously. It's just, I'm not a sneak attack Christian and I don't want, I don't want to view people as projects. You know, I think, <laughs> I think the evangelical <laughs> church has done a really bad job at that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, it's just not in my wheelhouse. So I wanted to make that very clear. <laughs> yeah. Sneak attack Christians. That's such a it is. <laughs> People are people, not projects. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I got to get that on cross stitch. There you go. I like that. So <laughs> you in here, you know, not everyone who's listening has read the book yet, but what made you decide when the pandemic started? What made you decide to create your friendly neighbor epidemiologist? Yeah, and you know, I was at two conferences right when Wuhan was starting to ramp up in March 2020. And we, this is our training. This is our lane. You know, this is our day to really step in and go for it. So once we saw, and when I say we, I say public health and epidemiologists, we saw how this new virus was acting and what was happening. A lot of us paid attention pretty um, significantly to what was happening because what was it was different than Ebola. You know, Ebola is awful. And hopefully we'll talk about where I talk about that chapter in the book. But when someone is sick and contagious, you kind of know it because it's it's really horrific and visual. Um, with this, it looked like it was COVID or well, well, we weren't even calling it COVID at the time, whatever was happening maybe people were spreading it before they even knew they were infectious and contagious. And so it could catch a lot of people off guard. My day job here at Duke is also working with health equity communities um, around the world in very poor countries where they're affected daily by bad access to healthcare, you know, poverty. And so if this really was going to be the pandemic that people had been predicting for years, the margins were going to be affected the most. So everything in me was just kind of like rising of, uh uh-oh. So I get home and a lot of people were asking questions of, you know, what does flatten the curve mean? Do we need to buy a billion rolls of toilet paper? And the answer was Mm -hmm. always no. (laughs) People did it anyway, though. Yeah, I know. And don't hoard. That's just classic America, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, But also there was... A lot, and I, I re, we all remember. I mean, this is real fear. I do want to honor that of people who are high risk, um, the elderly. You know, do I need to be scared? Basically, and I wanted to calm fears but not squash them because it was scary. So I decided, why not? Why don't I just start a Facebook page for the handful of real life neighbors that I had and like my family. Really, I mean, it was just very, very genetic, generic, not genetic. (laughs) Uh, So I named it Friendly because I tend to be too friendly. Like if I sit by you on an airplane, I'm very sorry. Um, Because I I really am. Anyways, it's just who I am and I'm trying to accept that. But neighbor, because of the Good Samaritan story, I knew that COVID in particular was going to imply that we needed to neighbor one another well. Um, we were going to have to take care of the margins. There's going to be a lot of solidarity of staying home for those that couldn't uh, get the vaccines for those where it would not work. You know, I, there just was a lot of neighboring that was going to take place. So I named it because of that. I'm also a pastor's wife. And so I thought this is going to be prime time for the church, the big C church to be the church. And I say that, I know listeners can't hear it, but I say that with a smile, um, not as sarcasm, but I was so idealistic at, I really thought this was going to be our time to shine and take care, you know, live, love thy neighbor really out in full-blown faith. 
Um, so I named it Friendly Neighbor Epidemiologist. And um, the only people that followed at the beginning were real life people that I knew. <laughs> and then when the pandemic started shifting, we all saw this. When it became weirdly political, um, when national leaders started talking about it as the China virus or these othering type, I was going, what is what's happening? That is not the faith that I ascribe to. And then when it became, you know, faith over fear, we started hearing that and people started saying that instead of wearing a mask, I was like, you have not read Galatians 5 in the Bible. You might say faith over fear, but that's not true faith. So I started posting about that too, from this perspective of pure science and then weaving in the faith part to try to help people anchor in a different way than perhaps they were able to anchor at their own churches. And that seemed to resonate with a lot of people for good and bad ways. So then it started going viral. George Floyd was murdered. And we ta I talked into that conversation at, especially in the white church, there's a difference between all lives matter and black lives matter mm -hmm. and why that distinction is important. People couldn't understand. So it'd go viral for that. And I wasn't doing this to go viral. I, I don't actually think I was noticing what was happening because I was just busy writing and, you know, daily posting. Um, and then the Capitol riot happened and I wrote about that one and that one really kind of exploded. So, so that's how I got into it. I'm sure we can talk about the nuances, but that's how it initially started. And you alluded to, you know, your children seeing the things being said about you and everything. What surprised you most of, as it started going viral with the reactions like because you you share some things in here and that were really challenging to read and you in there though even said that um i will not share everything yeah and so i just it i can't imagine the pain you went through and but you you i loved that you embraced your vulnerability with that because i so i'll be honest Yes, I, I am a Christian, but there are many times, especially over the last several years, and Zach knows this very well, that I have a really hard time saying I'm a Christian. Oh, for sure. Because of yeah. the extreme baggage that comes with it. Yes. That I feel like if I say it, I have to qualify it. Really. Oh, and absolutely. Yeah, we had Brian McLaren on um, last, what, May of 22. Nice. Um, and we talked a lot about, about it then as well because of just the extreme hate that I felt like we were seeing that I guess has always been there, but now is more acceptable to be said. And so I'm just curious, you are, I, I've never been the me a member of an evangelical Christian community um, in that way. And so I'm just curious, what surprised you the most, or if you don't mind sharing some of that? Yeah. Yes. And that, you know, this portion of the book, the book is separated into three different sections, centering cost and courage, um, had to be three C's, like a good Baptist, I guess. But that middle section is <laughs> yes. the thank you for that. <laughs> I grew up charismatic and married a Baptist pastor. And now we go to a liter, uh, liturgical church. So I'm not sure what I am at this point. <laughs> yeah. I grew up charismatic Did you? and went to a Baptist seminary and married my wife there. And then now I'm a part of a mainline denomination. So look, oh, I'm, we I'm maybe that's just a natural, there's a lot of us out there. Maybe that's a progression. <laughs> yeah. 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 I have to figure out where 
to like the call and response, do I say the bold or not? Because I, I would get it wrong or stand and sit. I just get it wrong a lot, but whatever. <laughs> the church is fine about it. Yeah. So the, the middle cost section is the shortest part of the book. It was by far the hardest to write and the hardest to read on the audio. I read the audio book. And when I was recording it, I realized th- these chapters still feel so messy. Um, and it's because I just couldn't do more. I couldn't get it. I couldn't package it in a way that some of the other chapters felt pretty and tidy and bowed up. And anyways, it feels like there's a, a lot of ums and ohs in that chapter because it is incredibly painful. Um, we were in Texas at the time. We were in the belly of the beast, it kind of feels like, of you know, Waco, Texas, great, great people there, but also the, you know, the, the buckle of the Bible belt, um, probably the latch of the buckle. (laughs) (laughs) So what surprised me is we, when I started talking more and more about faith over fear, we started getting little trickles. I say we, I started getting little trickles of pushback from that online. Um, and you know, it's horrific stuff. It's not, I mean, you get called names and people, you know, you can put that aside, but when I started getting pictures of people sending pictures of guns and Holocaust imagery to me and saying awful things about my children, you know, threats against them, it became very real. And then one day in the middle of it, uh, my husband came in and brought in a letter that was in our mailbox that was written in black and red marker. Um, And it was a it was an awful threat. And it was laced with, you know, you're part of the mark of the beast and a lot of these religious overtones, which I had heard and received for months at that point, but not in my mailbox. Um, I mean, that is when. It became incre- it became too close. You know, there's a cost that was to me, but then this was going to be a cost to the whole family, um, and and to the church, to our church. I mean, we ended up leaving the faith community. Uh, that not all faith, but that one. Some of the worst threats and harassment I got were people from within my own neighborhood or people that I worshipped with. Mm. Those are the ones that I won't share because. I just can't talk about it yet. Um, the book is is not a COVID book because I can't talk about it for 200 pages, nor do I think people want to read about it. So the cost was awful because we couldn't let our kids go walking around the neighborhood without one of us. They had safe homes that they could go in if they ever felt scared. They don't know why we were saying that. We just said, any, you know, if there's a rainstorm, run to these five homes or, mm-hmm. and they still don't know that. And that's very tender um, for me as a mom to have to hold. And to, uh, you know, at that time, it was also feel, feeling like I was losing a foundation of, of faith. Cause I grew up with Sandy Patty, Michael W. Smith, Bethel worship. I mean, come on now, yes. really good. Yeah. <laughs> All of that evangelical stuff. And I remember watching the prayer rally that happened in November 2020, and I'm sure you guys watched Mm -hmm. it as well. You know, on the Capitol steps, Michael W. Smith is there, Franklin Graham. I mean, these, it was a massive, thousands of people rally. And this was also at the height of that first surge before vaccines. So my soul could not reconcile 
how that was standing on faith when I put the number in the book of how many died that day, but it was at the peak of the deaths in the U.S., like morgue trucks, you know, scenarios. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I just couldn't reconcile it. So I felt like we were losing our faith community, um, losing jobs, you know, or leaving jobs, uh, losing real life friends. And then these foundations that I had just anchored in were, I was just losing that as well. Um, So it's just difficult. I, I do wish that I could have shielded my family from some of that and just taken more of the brunt of it. But it's just part of the, you know, it's part of the cost of us as a family. Mm. Um, and I wanted to put some of that vulnerability in because I think a lot of people, especially from the faith communities have lost a lot or Thanksgivings and Christmases have been very hard and are still hard. I just get mm. that. At the same time, it's a tip of the iceberg of what I did put in there. So I wanted to be careful to not put too much just because I yeah. couldn't talk about it. Well, and I appreciate, like I said, I appreciate, I, I'm someone who embraces vulnerability. Um, and you know, I really love Brene Brown's work yeah, around that sure. too. But I very much appreciated you sharing that with all of us and the readers because I just, it was tough. It, it was yeah. tough to read. and. But I admire that you continued the work a lot. You know, I really appreciate that too because you you are still continuing to do what you can to save lives. Well, and that was a choice. I mean, there was a point in there where a couple of the threats, and I mean, we were working with high up authorities at certain parts of it, and I I just asked my husband, you know, what do, do we need to just stop? Do I need to? I, will I? do I need to stop basically? Um, cause I would, I would have just pulled all of it. It would, it was not worth having a child, having one of my kids hurt or worse. Um, and so we took a little bit of a break there in the middle of it to kind of discern and use wisdom. Um, and then I just decided to keep going with certain parameters in place of, uh, some cameras and, authorities and some backup plans, also some boundaries around what I would or wouldn't say, who I would or wouldn't listen to. I got asked to come on on far right, like Breitbart type podcast and just I automatically just saying no to that. I mean, that's just a boundary. So it was a, it was a choice to keep going, but it was also at a cost. I mean, that was before I got sick in 2021. My body just said no more. And I, I just had a, I don't know if it was a thunderclap or a, just a massive migraine, never had it before. And it just put me in bed for 15 months. Yeah, so that, oh, it, reading that was tough too. Was I, it? Yeah. Yeah. And I just, because it just, I felt like your pain that you were experiencing, at least some of it was coming across, which again, I, I appreciated oh. that a lot. Yeah. Um, and I have a very dear friend of mine that was in my PhD program with that deals with migraines. I, I don't think she deals with them as much anymore. And this was, you know, back between 2004 to 2008, but I knew right before she started the PhD program, she would have them where she would be bedridden yeah. for like a month or something oh, like that. And sure. just, I couldn't imagine what that was like, but even, you know, I know I asked you how things are going now with you and your family. And you told us prior to recording that things are getting better. And, and 
But again, you made the choice to continue yeah. trying to save lives. Like, I think that's very admirable. And so I, that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to get you here and to read your book. Because that truly is admirable. Because I have faced hateful things just because of stuff I do with science and religion for a long time now. Nothing compared to what you've done. But there have been plenty of times where I've thought, oh, I can't, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, it's yeah. just not worth it. Um, yeah. And it was nowhere near to the scale of what you have experienced. And so I just, I think it gives a lot of people hope. And I just wanted to make sure you knew that. Well, thank you. There was also a a scrappy piece of me that did not want to let them win. Mm-hmm. And because there were, there were months of being bedridden in an incredibly dark room. Uh, I mean, laughing would send me to weeks of a migraine that no amount of medicine, including hospital type medicine would touch. And so I, there was a little bit of a fight in me too, of, I just, I was so terrified that that was going to be the rest of my life. Um, and I was doing everything possible to get out of it. And so now that I've come out of it a little bit more, the tenacity, the scrappiness to keep going means not only did the, like the bad people, you know, they did not win, Mm -hmm. but also living into probably who I am more of myself now than I have ever been because of it, because I'm a whole lot Mm. braver and courageous than I thought was actually in me. So thank you for saying that. Cause it's, you know, I think we, we hear stories of like overcoming something and it looks like it was an overnight thing and you just believed your way out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> and that, this is not the prosperity gospel. It right. is it is really difficult stuff and you know just day by day I'm just doing I'm I'm just so grateful to be doing my job again. Oh, you remind me of uh Julian of Norwich, my favorite dead Christian. Are you familiar with her story at all? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yes, I How am. How she uh asked asked Jesus for uh, an encounter as close to death as possible so she could get to the heart of things and then to come back and be able to share that and the amount of revelation she encountered on those dark nights in that bed um, changed her and really clarified the rest of her life. Yeah. And I'm hearing I'm hearing that a lot from you as well. Yeah, she was probably a little bit more f- full of faith in the bed. I was just like, what is happening? And I want out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But when she says all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things shall be well, she's saying it from that bed. And so it actually means something instead of the sort of, uh, you know, pithy platitudes that you would see on a bumper sticker card. And so when you talk about it and you talk about hope and change and good things, I, I feel, I believe it mm-hmm. more, you know, cause you've been through the flames. Yeah. That passage in particular that she said is, um, that's what my husband would, would tell me just nearly daily during those really dark times, all shall be well and all, yeah, all of that. So that's very special. That's my mantra. I repeat to myself almost a daily basis. You know, one of the things that surprised me in reading some of your work, um, when I when I hear about epidemiology, I think of, well, that's spread of disease, clearly. Um, but that's so such a small part of your book and a small part of your writing. And I, I'm reading about gun violence and systemic racism and injustices and economics and um, 
all kinds of things that have nothing to do with disease. Um, am I am I reading epidemiology wrong as a as a as a study, or is it that? this is all just a part of how your heart works. Uh, it's probably a both and of that. But epidemiology is not just the pandemic, epidemic, you know, disease detective type stuff that they make movies of. It's that, but it's also anything that affects a certain group of people differently than another group of people. And so that could be, you know, in my work, that's that's poverty and children's health. It could be who is affected the most by congenital heart disease, you know, a, a chronic type condition. Um, so it's a really broad field than just disease detectives. Okay. Well, so, and I remember in your chapter, uh, Trickle Up Economics. Uh, I, and so I'll be honest, Emily, there, there are so many, like I, I've now been putting like little markers in here, but I've folded down so many pages that I can't get, oh, sorry, I can't get to everything I want to oh. say. So I, you made something <laughs> and I can't find everything again because I just, there. I mean, I have comments on almost every single page. Oh, yay. Um, we'll and your references in the end and stuff. And <laughs> especially, so, you know, I'm also a fellow academic. And yes. so I just was pulling your references and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing, honey. And just, and also too, I started down like the anti-racism journey in I think 2016. And so some of the things I was aware of, but it was nice to also reread it and stuff. But the, the chapter on trickle-up economics, when you talk about um, the question you ask us is, do you want to know the main factor pre uh, predicted? Do you want to know what main factor predicted descending into poverty and not being able to climb back out, even when you account for everything else? And it was having a child who needed surgery. Yeah. Which I was not at all surprised, obviously, it was health-related, but that part. And the part I'm trying to remember too, was that just for the communities in Somalia land or was that also applicable worldwide? Oh, it's applicable worldwide that look okay. like, I mean, the, the margins countries, you know, the right. poorest countries yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, um, that was not something that we expected either. You know, in my day job, I work in communities like in Somaliland, which is the fourth poorest country of the world on children who need surgical care. And so we know there's a group of kiddos who can get to you know, a hospital when they need it. There's a whole slew of them that can't for reasons that are not their fault, nor their family's fault. That's the structure, system, systemic racism, structural violence type stuff that happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had been working with our community partners within the country for starting in 2016, trying to map out in the country, where are the kids who need the greatest care? Um, how far do they have to travel? I mean, it is hours and hours and hours on wheelbarrows and stuff that is just not equity. It's just not what we would want for our children by a landslide. And then we started teasing the data. This is part of epidemiology that I love is you start with the margins and then you go further in to get the truth of the story, because that's what laws and legislations are built on, policies. And we found that there were a group of families in Somaliland that went into poverty because of something and never came out. There were some that were able to climb out of poverty. And we see this in the U.S., right? Someone goes to the ER. If you have an, an insurance or a nest egg or 
family members that could chip in, you're you it's going to be a huge expense, but some go into poverty and can come out and others can't. So in Somaliland, that's what happened. And we started looking at those families at what was different about them than the rest of them. I thought it was going to be the income level of the family or child, you know, the number of kiddos that they had to feed. Um, but it was having a kid with surgical care. Uh, mm. And so we took that to the United Nations as a policy effort in 2019. On uh, There was a big summit there for universal health coverage. And it's asking the question of what basically is going to be covered under a universal health coverage package. And we know it's going to be vaccines and taking care of the sniffles, you know, primary care stuff. But what about surgery? Because that is what is impoverishing people. So we went to make that statement Um and the chapter is about starting with the stories of the margin and then trickle your way back up instead of the whole trickle down capitalism type where you put, you know, $100 in Jeff Bezos mailbox and you hope it reaches the poorest of the poor in inner Detroit. Uh, so it was a very it was really interesting finding for me, um, but it also linked the story, their story, hopefully to policy change at the highest levels. Yeah. Well, I've always said that I th I think it's um, shameful that our country, which is the richest country, I believe, in the history of the world, that anyone in this country could ever go into poverty because of healthcare. And we're the number or one. Or that people are in poverty. But yeah. still, it, there's so many things there, right? But that healthcare can make people go bankrupt. I... I will never understand that with the amount of money and wealth right. in this one country that that's possible. It just is absolutely mind boggling to me. And, yeah. and then of course it elsewhere, right? I mean, you talk about in this chapter of like the wealth of like the 10 richest people or, or whatever the, the number was and what that could do yeah. for those countries in the margins, right? But even the margins in our own country. Um, and I just, I found that uh, really interesting. I was really grateful that you went that route with that chapter because I thought it was just so important. Right. And I think see. that that's where the, our centering is wrong because this story of medical impoverishment, healthcare impoverishment is in the Bible too. You know, the, the story of the bleeding woman who had spent, her last resort was to go to find Jesus because she had spent all of her money for years mm trying to get care. And then she touches the hem of his garment to try to be incognito and he stops the crowd for her. Like he, his center, his majority, his view was not the crowd. It was the medically impoverished woman. So there's a chapter about, about that too, about his majority, you know, how we can make that, how we can visualize the world. I think perhaps like what he looks like, but I get all the time um, we just need more resources or Emily, we just need more money type. And I don't, I think that's short-sighted. I don't think that's true. I think we have in the world enough resources and enough money that we need. We just don't have enough equity. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's money, that's healthcare. We saw that in the pandemic with the lack of oxygen. And there's a whole chapter in there on oh, yeah, that innovation. Was yeah. And in India. Yeah. When they were running out of, of oxygen, it's not because the world lacks oxygen. It's because the U.S. and high-income countries gobbled up stockpiles of it. 
And so the question, innovation, is making sure that oxygen is where it needs to be, but also asking the harder systemic questions of why wasn't it there in the first place. Um, that The other chapter in that section on courage is on valuing a life. You know, how do we value mm-hmm. it? Which I think that one was the hardest one to write outside of the cost chapters. Do you remember those about Ebola? Yeah. 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 Can we go into that a little bit? That yeah. that was very challenging chapter to read too. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Well, it just, and I'm going to butcher their names because I'm getting to it, but I mean, do you mind telling us the story with that, yeah. the doctor who died, but then the other one who mm-hmm. didn't and yeah. Yes. So the, it starts out introducing you to Dr. Khan. And for those of us in public health and global health, we know who Dr. Khan is. He is the Anthony Fauci of Africa. Um, he had also been prior to the 2016 Ebola outbreak that hit his country and, you know, West Africa. We all probably remember that epidemic. He had been working with congressmen here in the U.S., uh, people, legends like Dr. Paul Farmer, who the book is in part dedicated to, um, to advocate for pandemic or epidemic preparedness for his hospital or resources for something that, you know, could really cripple their system uh, with not a whole lot of fanfare. You know, not much was done with that type of legislation. So I'm trying to set the stage that he is a very well-known and respected doctor. When Ebola hit in his country, he was also frontline because um, he's a an MD, so he ended up getting Ebola, and this was this was in his health system that wasn't given the necessary resources to be ready for this epidemic, even though he was advocating for it. So, with Ebola, without the supportive care, you deteriorate very quickly. Um, Ebola is not highly fatal; it's highly fatal without the support. But not here in the U.S., which is why a lot of people that are the people that have gotten it and have received care here have not passed away. Um, so he gets it. He gets very sick. He gets transferred to a MSF unit that was specifically made for Ebola, and he keeps deteriorating. So they were having to make a decision on: Do we give him what's called ZMAP? And at that point, it was an experimental drug for Ebola. Um, it was the only option available for treatment outside of supportive care like IVs and rehydration. Um, it, I go into a little bit of detail in the book, but I would definitely encourage people to go read that full story by the New York mm-hmm. Times article, and that's in the references. Um, but they made a decision not to give him ZMAP. Now, there were only a few vials of that in the world one of which was actually at that MSF facility or very close by. He was also asked to be medevaced, and that was given. He A plane did come, but he was so sick, they refused to take him because it was not equipped like we see those, mm. you know, the big ones here. So he ends up dying just a few days later. Without his family, they finally let a friend go in at the end um, to be with him. If you reverse time a couple of days, there were two other doctors in West Africa. Well, one doctor, then a nurse that got Ebola too. Same thing, got very sick, deteriorated, had to make a decision of what to do. They were also asked to be medevaced, and there was a conversation about ZMAP to be given to them. 
Both of them received ZMAP. And not only that, they were medevaced in the state of the art. You know, it looks like a sci-fi book uh, airplane, just equipped with every legit thing possible to keep that contained um, and landed in here in the U.S. I remember that. I don't know if y'all remember that Mm -hmm. on the news where um, full hazmat suits, there's a team of 15, 20 doctors um, and they walked out of that hospital a couple days later recovering. I was very intentional in that um, chapter who I named by name and who I didn't. Because the point I was trying to make was if that was my family, I would do, I would move heaven and earth to get them medevaced. And so I didn't want to dishonor that. The question is more at a 30,000 foot level of who is worthy to get ZMAP? Who is worthy to get oxygen? Who is worthy to get medical resources or you know, free healthcare or free education, how do we value a life and how are people's lives valued? And then when you take that to a country level, who gets what from a country? So as a person of faith, I wanted to write a chapter that honored Dr. Khan, but then the bigger questions too of how should we value people if we are believers of, you know, of the Bible or of what Jesus says. So it was, it was a hard chapter to write. Um, I also wanted to, that mission organization of the two people that got medevaced out were part of Samaritan's Purse. And I had been a vocal, uh, I spoke against Franklin Graham's um, aspect, how he was treating the pandemic very vocally. So everybody knows what I think about that. I also mm-hmm. have really good friends that work at Samaritan's Purse. So it's not it's not about the missions agency. It's about some people having friends in very high places with a whole lot of money to help people in need while others don't and asking the mm-hmm. question of why. And I love how you bring it back to equity because that, yeah. as you said, that's what this is all about. And which again is very tragic, right? But um, I wanted to shift if I can. There was another thing I just wanted to, there was a quote that I loved. It was at the end of the chapter on, um, let's see, which one was this? Broadening our definition of health. Yeah. When you're talking about the Good Samaritan. I just wanted to read it out because I I just loved it. I read it to my wife um, and I just was really happy with this one. But you say, the last paragraph, by the way, did the Samaritan tell the man the gospel or preach to him or hand out a tract? The parable doesn't tell us anything like that. I have a hunch Jesus would have mentioned it if it were important to the point he was making at the time, but he didn't. What he modeled for us with with this story is being a neighbor in word and deed. And I actually was on a Zoom meeting with uh, my priest, it was last Wednesday, so you know, uh, nine days ago, and other lay leaders in our church. Uh, and I just was telling them that we were interviewing you and then read that to them because I I really, part of my struggle is when people the certainty aspect of things that they, this is the way we're supposed to behave or, you know, it's yeah. my way or the highway when it comes to being a person of faith. Um, and I just love that you pointed that out of just there, that's not in there. And, and you were right. Right. When I read it, I just was like, Oh my gosh, that's yeah. Like yeah. that's a great lens to take to it. Um, to show that that was not the purpose. 
And right. I love that. And well, just, don't you think he would have put it in there? I mean, Jesus is oh, super duper smart. Yeah. I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah. he was very um, sneaky and intentional with the parables and how he told the stories. So yeah. I, I think he would have let us know that we needed to put a track in there before we gave people health care. But gosh, it, I mean, unconditional love is not conditional on viewing people as projects or right. proselytizing. So I, I just wanted, especially in the evangelical church, to, you know, we do things with or we should do things just out of a goodness of heart. Um, because we're we're I mean, it says in the Bible too, when we do these, you do it unto me. When you take care of the poor and feed and clothe, then you take you do it for him. Um, mm-hmm. And so I keep in, I think keeping that perspective, I think we should do more of it in the evangelical church for sure. Yeah, you mentioned the evangelical church. Um, you have a chapter in here called "Topics yeah. Too Many Evangelicals Don't sure. Talk About," <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I would expand that to topics that Christians in general don't talk enough about. Um, what sorts of things should we be talking about? I wrote that because when I got back from that UN meeting that I was, I told you about earlier, uh, you know, I'm a pastor's wife. And so we get in there for Sunday school and somebody called me a socialist (laughs) and I did not know, I didn't know how to respond because it caught me so much off guard that, wait a minute, I just told you we were talking about like poverty. You know, we can all agree that that's a problem and let's help. So I, it, it made me realize we need a conversation about what some of these topics are. It also came out of the pandemic. We you know when I would talk about structural violence or systemic racism or Black Lives Matter, climate change, there was such this hubbub of we don't want to talk about it or overtones of we just don't go there. But I think when we hold those to the sky, they reflect heaven because there's still an equity issue. So I wanted to make that's the whole first part of the book is on that, you know, how to talk about that in non-threatening, but challenging ways still. Then that last chapter on making the connections between climate change and poverty and the margins to try to at least let pastors know, talk about it from the pulpit. And here are some ways that you can talk about it where you don't have to scream you know, you don't have to come across as a crazy liberal <laughs> if you're in a, a predominantly Republican Texas type church. But they are holy words because they are equity words. Uh, so that's what that chapter is about. Thank you for bringing that up. I chuckled at the title. <laughs> it made yeah. me chuckle too, as an evangelical who's been, well, former evangelical who's been accused of all kinds of things that, you know, is Jesus taught me. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I have a shirt that says, um, um, cast down the mighty, lift up the oppressed, uh, feed the hungry, send the rich away empty handed. And I often get accused of like Marxism for that. And I say, oh, sure. Magnificat. Mary says that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or Jesus's first sermon, you know, when he rolls out the scroll from Mm. Isaiah, that is full of captives free and the oppressed and yeah, good news to the poor. Yeah. yeah. So kind of adding to that chapter in particular, you know, the pandemic, you know, there was already lots of divisions in our society, obviously pandemic, I, I believe made it much worse. 
and and more in our face. And so I'm curious, you know, especially as someone who does work with uh, trying to figure out ways to combat misinformation, science misinformation in particular, um, with either from my education lens or just research or work I do. You know, I, I started when you started seeing the uh, the increased hesitancy around the vaccine. Yeah. Um, that really started raising a lot of flags for me of like, this is not ending, that we're going to see this. This is going to you know, spread to hesitancies and laws against other vaccines that have made it so that diseases that have been eradicated from our country solely because of those vaccines, those will come back. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just curious, you know, the white evangelical community has a lot of power. Sure. And so how can one start to have conversations with those communities? You know, I've never been a member, so I know it'd be hard for me, but you were a member and you went through a lot because of what you were trying to do. How how do we get back in to be able to figure out ways to work with those communities to build that trust again, right? And to help them realize that the science is not there to get them. It's not evil. It's trying to save lives. I mean, that's the point. And so how would you recommend we do that? I wonder if I'll rec- if I would recommend something different if I answered this question in 5 years cuz I still feel like it's too close. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I I think one of the biggest things is knowing who is actually going to have a conversation with you and who is not mm-hmm. and having the wisdom to just leave the room or leave a leave a church like it's it's okay. We don't leave a church because we don't like the color of the carpet. You know, I'm not that type of Christian. But <laughs> if there are real equity things and faith issues, I think I think it is okay to leave a church. So if I don't know, leave leave friends, lose friends. I know that's hard when there are kids and youth mm-hmm. and some people have to stick with it. If you do stay and you're trying to have these conversations, I would be really careful to guard your heart on what you let in, what you what you let in and what you hear, because Mm -hmm. it can pummel you, which is why I wanted to write some of that cost section so vulnerably. You know, I wish I would have known a little bit more. Maybe it wouldn't have been so bad if I would have had some of the wisdom to not go to every, every fight that I was invited to. So, and there's a chapter on that, on the wisdom of Nehemiah, you know, having that type. I I like that chapter a lot. Yeah. Thank you. It's very good. Mm -hmm. I would also tell people to be very cognizant, to pay attention to people who are not learning or listening anymore, because the evangelical church has Mm -hmm. a incredible amount of power, always have, you know, Mm -hmm. like faith and prayer at football games where I grew up was still going on in the nineties and two thousands. It's, it's probably still going on or 10 commandments. And so we think that that should be the norm or the center of everything else when it actually shouldn't. And if somebody can understand why I just said that and why it matters, that's a person who listens. If others just dig in their heels more and we want the good old days, but don't realize those good old days were awful for a wide group of like black Americans, any immigrants, um, Mm -hmm. then we've missed the point. So I think I'm, I don't think I'm answering your question. <laughs> I think I'm telling no, people you to are. be careful. Yeah. yeah. And also just to, there's this whole notion in the evangelical space that we just need to come together and get along. Mm-hmm. 
And that phrase really bothers me because that inherently denotes that there are two sides that need to come together, that both are weighted equally. And in that case, sure, let's come together because that's the center. But when you have two sides and one is their voices have had the microphone longer than another side, it's time to equal out that balance where both sides can be heard. And that is still just certainly not going on, especially with science. Right. So it's less about finding the 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 middle point between two things and more thinking about it like a binary star system where the one that is the center of gravity has to do with the relative mass of each one and so a you know a big star and a small star the center of gravity is going to be closer yeah. to the big star because the that's where the mass is and when we're talking about on this side we have a climatologist and on this side we have your uh, uncle on Facebook then the center of gravity is not going to be in the middle right. of those two yes. things, right? <laughs> yeah, or even in, I'm working with some um, indigenous communities in Brazil and listening a lot longer as a researcher of what their health needs are, including how to overcome them. So talking with traditional healers and valuing and honoring where people's stories are and their needs more than maybe a preconceived idea of what I think it should be. Yeah. Well, so I just had a couple s smaller questions, if that's all right. Good. Um, and I just appreciate your time. I really do. But so I'm curious, especially for you with your expertise, you know, as we reflect back on COVID-19 and this pandemic, um, it's natural for us to think about what we could have done differently. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, but also too, what can we learn from this to better prepare for future outbreaks of infectious diseases? Because I'm not saying another pandemic is going to happen right away, but there will be outbreaks of infectious diseases. We know that. Um, and so I'm just curious, what are the things that we can learn from this to try to do more preventative measures in the future? Yeah. What would you recommend? I would recommend starting a conversation on trust in people's expertise instead of feeling like you're the expert on everything, which is a, a classic American thought. You know, we're very individualistic. And so I think that could start, that's very 30,000 foot, but trust the experts. Um, but then finding the community champions within the communities that are speaking from a place of their own. You know, I think that's why part of why I went viral is because I was speaking into my own community. I knew the language. I loved the church. I understood what pastors and their families were going through. So if you can find those, and that, that means, you know, if we have distrust in some sort of science or the vaccines, then find the communities where that distrust is and then find the people there that are the champions. Um, so I just think it's, I just think it's a trust. It's a value issue. We, I know people don't like to hear about the political stuff, but who we vote for matters um, in very real ways on the ground. And we saw that. So I think letting, I think having conversations about that too, you know, it's not, we are not voters of just one issue. Um, if you are, that is going to trickle to a billion other types of issues. So Right. Letting people, especially like my children, I've got a teenager telling her about the importance of 
who you vote for and why that matters. Yeah. So is there anything that you want to share? Anything else we should have asked, but didn't? No, I mean, I hope if anything for the book, I hope that it makes people laugh um, because there's a lot of stories in there that hopefully Mm -hmm. are funny. There's really silly um, pictures from my science fair board. Um, (laughs) Please go look at that. It's fantastic and a little over the top. But I also hope I think the picture, if I can say the picture that you're staring, I forgot who you're staring at, but you talk about (laughs) that you have it. Uh, oh yeah, that picture of the board is great. But then the picture of you staring at somebody it's, and you put you have that framed on your desk. I, who was that again? I, I couldn't find that again in the book right now. Yes, it's Dr. Tedros. He, Tedros, he is the WHO president, and I ran into him at the UN, and that is my picture of me, like total fangirl moment with him. <laughs> it was hilarious, and I just. I, I mean, I'm sure we've all done it. I do that with people all the time, but yours was captured on camera. And I love that you framed it and have put it on your own desk. Yeah, I have. Because a, I just find that hilarious. Like, that's just such a wonderful story. Well, I have one that's a real yeah. one. I mean, they took one where we're both looking at the camera, you know, legit, <laughs> but I just keep it because that, it just, it was how I felt at the time. And. <laughs> well, and I love that you shared it with us. Like I just, <laughs> you. you know, I could totally envision it. And then all of a sudden I see the picture. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. Like it just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is a fan was really cool. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And a completely you know, honest review for those who are uh, listeners and who hopefully trust the things that we say and do is that uh, this book is uh, really heartfelt. Mm-hmm. It is fact filled. And it is driven by story and your own personal experience instead of just, you know, here's a list of objective facts. And for me, uh, that not only conveys truth in a way that is easier to digest, but also shows how authentic you are and how important this this book is, how much of your own soul is encapsulated in this and how much of your own experience and growth from a uh, young and idealistic nerd who's going to save the world, who gets jaded and cynical, but then finds hope and emerges on the other side stronger. And I think think all of our listeners should find a copy at your local Mm -hmm. bookstore, or if you have to, on Amazon. Um, or listen to the audiobook, which is recorded by you. And that must have been a fun experience. Yes, it was fun. It's very hard to do, too, to just read it harder than expected. But it was fun to do. Well, and, and if I can just add to that, I think that's a, a great thumbs up there, Zach, and recommendation for this book. I, I can't recommend it enough for people. I think it's an outstanding book. Um, I agree with everything Zach said. But I, I loved, I just absolutely loved that you couched it in the Good Samaritan story, and also in Jesus' second commandment to us about love thy neighbor as yourself. Um, right. And I just, reading the whole book, it just, the theme was so clear throughout. Oh, and it good. was such, so beautifully woven throughout the entire book about the importance of loving our neighbors, which is something that I really push for. Um, I, in my class, I have my motto is be curious, not judgmental. I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan and really talk about that of how much more we can accomplish by, by just being curious. And I'm, Zach will tell you, I'm an insatiably curious person. I'm curious about everything. Um, But I just, I really loved how you really 
continue to provide more argument on the importance of loving our neighbors. Thank you. And what? Yeah. And I think this could this book can change things. I'm and you can. And I'm really happy that you joined us today. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for the honesty and it being just a kind of a safe space to talk about a book. My first book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's really good. Thank I've you. Loved it. Thank you.